Hello and welcome back to Constantino Monologue. Uh, in this episode we're going to be discussing the third chapter of Blood of Elves, the final Karamorian chapter, and with me once again for the actual novel sections, uh, we are joined by Joshua Rapier. Hello. Hello, hello. Nice to be back. Um, so this chapter you texted me and said, hey, I, I think uh, there's a lot of meat here, I want to discuss mm-hmm. it. So, um, what's your experience with Blood of Elves so far? Because you have read the two the two short story compendiums and mm-hmm. as well as some of the uh the short stories that were never translated like uh, the road with no return but mm-hmm. this is like the full like in in your face full length novel of the series uh, it starts the pentology of the saga uh so how is that transition going for you what do you think very well i'm on the final chapter at the moment so when i'm done with that i'll give you uh, a much bigger overview but at the moment i I'm really liking it. Uh, it's exactly what you told me what you would be. It's a nice, slow burn, character-focused story. And it's interesting. I find some of the chapters, they, they do kind of remind me of the short story format. Some of them feel like their own self-contained story with just uh, lead-ins, not massive cliffhangers to the next chapter, which mm. I quite like. Yeah. Um, you know, the, he never wrote a novel before. Like, he was finance degree accountant guy uh and he started writing short stories at the behest of his son and they got popular and he got a book deal and that was very rare at the time in poland for fantasy um and so i think blood of elves is this is this weird book where i love it i think it's really really great but it is a slow burn and for some people that's not good and i do think there is some pacing issues here and there and i think he could have tied some stuff up and you could definitely tell it's his first full-length novel and it does suffer a little bit of that and as you get into later novels things get tighter uh and much more focused and um just overall of a better quality for a novel as you said these chapters uh, while they do have some connective tissue, do kind of feel short story-esque, episodic in a way. Mm. He's very liberal with the time jumps, I've noticed. Yes, yes, yes he is. Um, and uh, I think that is a barrier of entry to a lot of people, uh, because they come to the short stories, they're like, okay. Um, and there's this big divide in the Phantom that some people think the short stories are demonstrably better than the novels. I vehemently disagree. I think the novels are the best bit. I love the short stories, don't get me wrong. But all my favorite scenes, all the great character growth comes from these five books. And uh, usually when you ask people why they think that, they have read the short stories and then they started Blood of Elves and either finished it and didn't continue on or only got partway through and stopped because the Blood of Elves is a slow book and it's not for people who uh come to expect uh you know fast-paced uh fun and ad- fantasy adventure um and so it's just sort of this uh interesting thing where some people are really averse to this style um and i i think that uh while he definitely gets much tighter and more focused as the books go on i and i do think that blood of elves is easily the weakest in the the pentology um that doesn't make it bad by any means. I think it's really, really solid. But, you know, there is um, there is this sort of caveat of don't expect uh, lots of sword fighting and, uh, and fun adventures. You'll get that later. This is much more of, you know, a family hanging out and getting to know each other, you know? Mm. So because of that, 
what is your take on because you watched the show Mm -hmm. uh and and in particular you watched the second season which quote-unquote adapts this book (laughs) um in that show there is a lot of stuff going on um it's in the second season that's just not in this book so what did you think of a much more just family getting to know each other in a dilapidated castle versus baba yaga and leshies and all that stuff well it's interesting because the first few chapters it i could i could read them I'm like oh so this is what the show is doing okay i can see the parallels just visiting the castle the training montages yeah it's all here and then the very next chapter chapter four that's where the massive divergence happens uh mm. so it's rather interesting to, to to see that and Regarding how the show handled uh, the Witcher castle and the witches themselves, I can't really complain too much. It does feel rather similar to what the book is doing here. But as I think you mentioned in text recently, I feel like Siri has a much better time in the novel. Like, I feel like she does get better on with with these guys than the ones in the Witcher show. Both versions had that kind of, you know, brotherly banter relationship. Here it just felt a bit more, you know, uh, more neutral. You know, it wasn't too cynical, as it were. Mm. I think the the big problem uh, with her time at Kermoran is that knowing what's coming down the pike, um, life is going to get very, very horrible for her. Um, and uh, for me, this time at Kermoran and her time at the Temple of Meledele with Yen in the final chapter is kind of like that that spark at the end of the tunnel, that light at the end of the tunnel, where it's just like, Life used to be cool. It used to be nice. It used to be carefree. And um, it's just nice to see her happy considering what is going to happen. Um, And so uh, the show making Eskel like some sort of crazy leshy monster um, and uh, prostitutes being a care morden. Uh, there being more witchers than there are. Like there's 20 witchers in the show versus the four. Uh, that are here, um, which kind of defeats the we're a dying breed thing. Mm. Uh, and uh, she didn't seem to have all that great of a time at Karamoran. It seemed to be pretty crappy. And I know Claudia even brought this up. Claudia is not the biggest fan of these books, but even she said, you know, Karamoran's that time when everything is looking okay for Siri. Her life's only about to get exponentially worse from here. Um, wouldn't it just be nice to have that one spark of happiness for her for just a little bit? Is that too much to ask? Uh, uh, because, like, especially in the show where she gets possessed by Baba Yaga and then goes and kills a bunch of witchers and gets stabbed by Vesemir, so she gets stabbed by her grandfather, basically. Mm. Um, like that... Fun, family, funny times. Yeah, that, that, that makes that time at Karamorin tainted. Hmm. And knowing what's coming down the pike, there's going to be times when she reflects on this time as a happier, simpler time. And we already know that the continent is, you know, broiling with war and racial tensions. And but she's right now in a castle with people who or who like her. So, you know, that this is a this is a kind time for her compared to what's coming down. So, like, I don't know. Uh, the, the show... Some of what they did, uh, I liked, um, and uh, I liked how they, they, they kept the Triss thing. I was expecting that to be cut. Um, and uh, it just, whereas this is a much more of a slow sort of 
uh, everybody gets to know her, and th they form bonds and relationships. Uh, that one's much more action-packed at an action pace. Mm. Um, they're they're making uh, they're making an action show, and the, the, the interviews say that uh, is that they feel like people expect a roller coaster. And if you read these books, I think you can attest these aren't action books. They have action in them. Um, but, uh, I would not classify them as high-octane action. Um, they're much more of, you know, cerebral chatting and walking down mm. roads. Large majority of the novels is just walking. Uh, and some people may, may, may make fun of that, but it's great. Uh, yeah. because character interaction and all that. To be fair, I think this, for my bed so far, I think this book has a, a good ratio of talking mm -hmm. and fighting. Like... You know, I was expecting there to be like one fight scene in total from what you told me last time, but uh, there's there's a nice um, occurrence of it. It's nicely spaced out. There's plenty of good character interactions, and then the fighting adds more tension to it. I feel like it is nicely balanced. Yeah, definitely. Like it, it's your 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 classic sort of um, I I would say old style fantasy. Um, like like your Lord of the Rings style ratio of combat to uh, the talking. Uh, nowadays we uh, we tend to put a lot more action in things than there used to be, um, and so I uh, I wonder if that's just like modern sensibilities getting to it, where I I read it as less than uh, be uh, than normal because I you know I'm of a certain age and uh, and primarily experience modern stuff. Um, and, and that may also play into why Netflix did what it did. Who knows? Um, but uh, the the big thing with this chapter um, is Siri's uh, training and Triss's whole whole PTSD stuff. Mm. So, what did you think? I think the 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 first real uh, thing that I think would be most interesting is what did you think of Siri's training being entirely dialogue no prose passages i thought it was brilliant it really made things a lot more snappier it allowed you to focus more on these characters uh allows for some pretty clever and funny reveals like this whole time series training you know on that uh training um mountain thing <laughs> failing <laughs> to become the right term uh and then right at the end the guy's like okay you can take your blindfold off now and i thought yeah. that was quite funny that was a funny little twist mm-hmm yeah, I'm, I'm glad you got that because um, the games uh, uh, in Witcher Three, you flash back to this moment, um, and so I hit because I played Witcher Three before reading the books. I, uh, I got uh, like I, I had the visual for that scene, so I always knew she had a blindfold. But I've talked to other people who never played the games, uh, like like you here, and uh, she was wearing a blindfold. That's really cool. I was like, yeah, it, it, it's a it's a neat little thing that if you don't know, it's just kind of a wink, um, and also you know with a backflip. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Um, and it it it's very it's very wholesome first of all, but also it's um what what I like about the dialogue is that. To me, Sapkowski's best uh, at at his best when two people are in a room talking, um, and uh, his dialogue is always quick. It's always snappy, and while his characters can go on long tirades on occasion, they make sense for the character, uh, and they they follow a certain rhythm. 
Um, and for some people, he's too dialogue heavy. And for some people, his dialogue is clunky. You know, it, it really depends on the person. To me, his characters talk like people talk to me anyway. Like, uh, I, I'm known for long soliloquies. If you're listening to this show, you probably already know that. Um, and, uh, you know, that they they talk in a very similar manner to me. So it felt natural to me. But to someone like Claudia, it was like, this isn't snappy enough. And, and I suppose there's there's merit to that. Um, and, uh, I, I just think it's interesting because, uh, when we did our retrospective, I pointed out the fact that it was all a dialogue and it didn't really click with her that it was all dialogue until I pointed it out. Um, and that really shows that, um, you know, while some people may have problems with his dialogue, when he's really tight with it, it's, you know, like, you just don't even notice. It's just that quick, that snappy, um, and that that character driven. That you're just fully pulled into those characters in that world. And I also like how in the, in that dialogue, how we get the different witchers treating her. You know, mm. uh, you got Cohen, who's the youngest there. He, you know, he's he's gonna, um, you know, he's gonna treat her much like uh, a pupil. You know, he's gonna, uh, he's he's. Older than her, certainly, but not too much old. So he's he, you know, he he's gonna treat her uh, on a almost equal footing. Um, and uh, whereas Lambert is very much, uh, you know, a uh, uh, a, a sports coach. You know, he, he's like, you're not doing that right. You got to do this, and he's very hard. But when she does something right, he's very complimentative. Uh, and then what you get, uh, you know, Eskel, who's uh, a bit more of a, a stodgy guy. He's not he's not really uh, comfortable, but he, he's trying to be nice. Uh, and then you got Vesemir, who's just like that very old cranky guy who's like, it's better. It was better in my day type person. <laughs> um, and then you got Geralt, who is trying his damnedest to be a dad. And you could tell. Yo, he's got that voice. He's got the voice for a dad. He knows when to change his tone to uh, be authoritative, but he's still learning mm. because you know you nothing can nothing you can do can prepare you for parenthood, no matter how much you try. Um, and for someone like Geralt, you know there was no preparing, and so he's 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 clearly learning as he goes and he's trying to be as good as he can. And, and there's that great moment where she's like, I can't do it. It's because I'm a girl. And he was like, okay, girl. And he keeps saying that over and over to show the ridiculousness of dividing mm -hmm. all long gender lines of, it doesn't matter about that. It's about your capacity and what you're able, how far you're able to push yourself. Sure. You don't have the standard muscle mass of a guy, but that doesn't change anything. That's not what this is about. This is about agility. This is about movement. Um, and your gender has no effect on that. Um, and, uh, the, it, it, it's just, uh, great to see him grow as a dad. Mm. Um, so, uh, what, what, what was your take on those, uh, on the, uh, on the witchers themselves? Obviously we got introduced to them last chapter. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, uh, what's your take on the, the witchers here, especially cause you came from the show where there's like 20 witchers here. There's. Eskel, Lambert, Cohen, Vesemir, and Geralt. That's it. Mm -hmm. I love the bit where it's just Triss and the guys, uh, Spings coming and talking about the politics of the world. 
or to be more accurate, Triss is trying to talk about it, and they're just like ignoring her. They're like, uh, "We're not. We don't do politics. We're not. We're not heroes. We're not going to be soldiers for the kings and kingdoms. We're here to fight monsters." And I love how Triss is pointing out like the hypocrisy. She's saying stuff like, "Oh, you'll save orphans from monsters, but you'll let entire villages be decimated by by the Nifl Guardians." Uh, and I really like. I really like that comparison. Uh, conflicting ideologies you know she she believes it's the right thing to do to stand up against them even though she's been so so much you know uh, she was nearly killed at sodden she's still so determined that she'll do it again if absolutely necessary if the need arises i'll stand on that hill again Mm. what's interesting about that conversation is that you can understand where both of them come from Mm. um like i you know politics is this icky messy thing where right and wrong are hard to define sometimes and uh you you it's just this moral quagmire and it's just better to ignore it so i can understand the witcher's impetus to just like i'm in my castle i'm going to ignore everyone else i'm going to eat this stew and (laughs) uh after winter's over i'm gonna go make some money Mm. uh and then tris you know she she's born and bred a sorcerer so she uh, she was trained for politics. She's even on uh, the the Temerian court. She's uh, she's the major advi- one of the major advisors to King Foltest, um, who was the king from the uh, uh, Striga story. If you didn't recognize the name, uh, you know she's obviously already involved in politics. But then the Battle of Sutton Hill happened, and the Battle of Sutton Hill is like this flashpoint in history where um, I'd say it's almost um, I guess maybe Battle of the Bulge or or uh, D-Day or something like that, where it was like this big impetus where the everybody realized, oh shit, this got super real. Um, and, you know, there were several people who um, came out scarred from that, including her, both mentally and physically scarred. Mm. Um, and because of that, because of that inherent survivor's guilt she has, she feels the need to uh pressure on and do what she views as right to uh to uh in this threat so that never happens again and you can understand her as well um and uh both both are right in their own ways um and it's interesting to uh sort of that economy of apathy and um when is apathy wrong and when is apathy right? And that's sort of a theme that will run through this entire saga. It's already ran through several of the short stories, but um, it becomes more prevalent in the saga, as I'm sure you've noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, do you take a stand for what you believe is right? Do you protect yourself or do you look out for those you care about? You know, wh- where is that line? Where can that be drawn? Where can you decide to stay neutral? Um, and uh, that that entire conversation is all about that. And it, it is a glorious one. Um, speaking of Sodden, um, what did you think of the fact that the show showed us Sodden, but the books never do? Uh, the books, we see the aftermath at Sodden Hill uh, with the monument and something more. And then we see the political uh, and racial tensions that are coming from it uh, in Dandelion's speech uh, in the first chapter. Uh, and we hear from Triss the ba- uh, about certain instances of the battle. Um, what did you think of that versus showing showing it as in the show did? And which do you prefer? 
think the I think the showrunners did a, did a right idea showing it for the show because you know book and film TV very different mediums with shows you have to be more visual like that so I don't blame them you know, I think it's more effective in a book uh, not having it be part of the narrative not being a point of view during the conflict I think the book plays it more smarter by you know recounting it after the fact from outside perspectives but I do think the show did the right thing um, take actually showing the battle in, in a way it's, I got the sense it was trying to be its own Lord of the Rings uh, you know last stand kind of battle yeah i do think that it, it could have been more effective if it was done kind of like let's say an episode's opened up with the aftermath of the battle and have Gail look for the bodies and then we have flashbacks to to the actual fight i think that could have been more effective mm -hmm. i think they bit the bullet trying to show it and i don't think that they were ready for that mm. Um, so there's a big battle that's coming up in this book series that is on the page, and we see it step by step, um, and I, I would consider it the Witcher's Waterloo. It's that big victory that someone needed. I won't say who and why. Um, yeah. And um, and uh, in sort of ends uh, a reign of terror. And so... Um, and it was a desperate fight, and we get to see that desperation in on the page. For Sodden Hill, I think Sodden Hill is such a decisive battle that ended in such misery and pain that I think the imagination can always conjure up more hell than uh, what you can show on screen mm -hmm. or, or on the page. Um, I remember when I watched the first season, I bursted out into laughter when they pulled out arrows and started shooting them with magic bottles, uh, because to me, Sodden Hill was uh, was a last stand battle uh, in which mages were used as artillery machines and decimated the battlefield. And uh, you know there was a den of flames, and there was a mound screaming, and that mound was a person. Couldn't tell it was a person anymore, but it was a person. And then Coral, you know, armless, legless stump that she is. We uh, the in the show, it's a lot of fantasy battle fun, and I don't feel any desperation in that battle. Um, and I'm not sure if they had the budget for it. Uh, reportedly, they had a fifty million dollar budget, which is the same uh, budget that uh, Game of Thrones had in season six and season seven. Mm. Um, and Game of Thrones did a much better job at doing a, a very uh, desperate battle in which no one left out there without some sort of scar, either mental or physical, called the Battle of the Bastards. It was so much better. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how, on the same budget, they fucked that up. Because to me, <laughs> Sodden Hill in the show is laughable. I don't feel like it was this big decisive battle. I'm told that by the characters. To me, it looked like a minor skirmish. Um, and uh, so, like, give an example of the like the differences in tone here. Uh, Triss is burnt to a crisp in the book, nearly unrecognizable. No hair left. Entire bodies charred. They thought she was dead for months. Until they cleaned her up enough to realize she was still a human being. Meanwhile, in the show, some soldier lightly taps a torch to Triss's chest, and she falls down. 
That's just a give an example of what the mind can do and what the budget can do. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, to me, what they should have done is I think they should have um, filmed small snippets and basically um, because Siri was near Sodden Hill uh, and they wanted to increase her time at Yurga's farm, maybe because she can see through time and space, have her see parts of the battle in quick flashes as a nightmare, and it freaks her out. So we can get better of that in Season 1. And then in Season yeah. 2, uh, when Trish shows up, they keep the scene. Uh, like, you know, you weren't there. You weren't on the hill. You didn't see what I saw. And have Trish recount it. There was a den of flames, and there, there, there was a screaming mound, and that screaming mound was a person. Um, and show that quick quick fire sort of quick shots of this battle to convey that it was complete hell for everyone there so that i don't spend 30 minutes of an episode laughing at the low budget of a fight <laughs> yeah yeah i think you're making good points well i'm what's coming to my mind is like go for a more magic version of saving private ryan you know that opening scene of dj yes. is absolute fucking brutal bloodbath you know wave after wave just being utterly decimated yeah, because like that is the point of that uh, the, the the battle is that they were losing, and then the 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 mages were effectively the the last shot they had. So they the twenty two mages that went up on that hill and they fought like hell, and they were used basically as artillery cannons effectively and decimated soldiers. And as Skelton Skag says uh, in the Dandelion chapter, um, like. The, the mages would just throw fireballs and it would char everyone, ally and enemy alike. Um, you know, they were trying to win the battle, and it was messy, and it was horrible, and no, you know, 13 people died, and another person ended up totally scarred and unrecognizable, and another person got blinded. Um, you know, like, this was not a happy time for anyone. And I think, as you say, the, the the Private Ryan thing would have been so much better uh, than what they gave us. Because to me, like, just watching that, I, I suggest you go back and watch, like, that the the Battle of Sodden scenes. Like, it's ridiculously silly. You could tell they ran out of budget for some of the magic stuff. So, like, they're shooting bows and arrows, and then a mind controller worm show up. And for some odd reason, they still have kids there in the castle. Um, instead of evacuating them, and uh, the kids get mind controlled and go and attack people, and then Jennifer does a superhero landing uh, from a falling tower, and Vilgefort summons daggers and throws it at people, which is not his MMO. He fights with a staff. Um, and yeah, there you go. That was their battle of Sodden. It was just really <laughs> funny. Um, and, like, they didn't even chop off Coral's legs and arms. They just ha <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that. I don't even know who that is, to be honest. <laughs> I know th I know they talked about her in the book, but I, didn't know I don't remember what they did with uh, them in the show. Oh. Uh, so, in she's a non-entity in here because she's, well, dead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but she's briefly mentioned a couple of times in the short stories and she in season of storms the prequel novel that must be read last because some of epilogue stuff takes place after the final book um is uh she's a main character in that 
Uh, if you remember uh, when he when Geralt saw the monument and he saw her name, mm -hmm. uh, he he said that there there was a time when she was so pissed off at him that she had the king imprison him for seven days, and then got him out, and then somehow he found his way into his her bed, and he has no idea what was going on there. Yeah. <laughs> That entire story will be told in the season of Storms and what the fuck was going on there. Nice. Um, but like they have her in the show. Um, and like she she gets a poison ivy moment where she grows a bunch of vines and kills some uh guys. But then after that, like a soldier just kind of puts a noose around her and starts choking her, and like it's supposed to be graphic, but it's like I know how she ends up with the books. Um, and this is very light compared to that. Um, she's she was an armless, legless stump that could still scream and could still feel, uh, and was dying. Like that's that's a far more creepy image than I'm getting choked out by a noose. Yeah. Um. So, and, and that also goes with the the fact that the no guardian armor looked like crap in the first season. Um. But that was a thing that they actually acknowledged and changed. Um, but anyway, no, I just, the, the Sodden Hill thing, you know, some people like the fact that it is off screen like me and some people don't, uh, I think it just really depends on the kind of fiction you're used to. Like your, your big, like modern, uh, fantasy stuff like Wheel of Time or Game of Thrones, they're going to tell you the battle step by step. And I think that uh, there is merit in that certainly. And we will get that with a future battle in this series. But do I think it is necessary for all of them? No. Sometimes you got to pull a J.R. Tolkien and knock out Bilbo with a rock so that you can <laughs> skip ahead to the end. You know? Yeah. Um, because sometimes the horrors of war aren't what happens during that battle. It's what happens afterwards. Uh, and to me, that's far more effective. Um, and while the, the future battle told step by step is... You know, you're you're going to be crying for a full chapter because it's pure misery in hell. Bring it on. <laughs> yeah, and you can tell it was written by someone who grew up in Poland in the aftermath of World War II because God is it full of vitriol and hatred for, uh, you know, just pure, uh, you know, hatred of what war does to people. Um, but, like, um, I think it contrasts well with Sodden where we see Sodden from the effects of the people who were there. Um, and then with the future battle, we get to experience it as though we were there. Uh, and that provides a nice dichotomy, I think. Nice. What do you think about what the show did, about making Yennefer the final, like, nuclear bomb, the deciding factor for, for the Allies, and then she loses her powers afterwards? What do you think about that uh, change from the book? Complicated. Hmm. So, watching season one, I said, uh, and I think I said it in my retrospective, um, it's a change that I could like. It really depends where they go with it. So, are you okay with a kind of a spoiler thing? I feel like we've already done massive plot twists, so sure, at this point. Okay, uh, Vilgefortz is a big bad guy. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, the entire impetus for a lot of what he does is because he was the hero of Sodden. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and because, and because he's kind of hero worshipped as the guy that saved the North and who saved the chapter of, of wizards, um, he gets all this political clout and basically carte blanche to do whatever he wants. 
And so he's able to enact all his crazy evil plans without much oversight until people start taking notice. Um, and, uh, and even then people are in disbelief because he's the hero of Sodden. Um, and so I wondered back in season one, how are they going to do that? Because if Vilgefortz is not revered as the hero, he's going to have more oversight, which means he can't get away with some of the stuff he does. Um, so how are they going to handle that? In, in the show, they kind of hand wave that away of saying that, uh, Yennefer just needs to... Uh, just not say that she was the hero, even though apparently everyone knows that, because even King Faltist, who is not there, knows that she was the real hero and not Vilgefortz, and I'm very confused on the show's continuity. But the thing is, is that it could have been interesting. Um, They could have played with this entire idea of a man taking credit for the accomplishment of a woman. Mm. They didn't. They just kind of said, oh, Yen's the hero, but Vilgefortz is taking the credit, yet somehow everyone knows that she was the real hero, and I don't know how Vilgefortz is going to get away with anything he does, outside the fact that in the show he's sleeping with Tesea, so I guess that gives him some clout. Um, in the books, he's not. So, you know, whatever. We'll see how they, that turns out, but I... I think it was an interesting idea. I don't know if it really works for me. So here's the thing. It could have worked. It could have been interesting. They didn't do anything with it. So now my full criticism that I felt when I first saw it could come through because I don't feel like I need to reserve that to see what they do with it. The Witcher is a micro story. You got things like Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones that are macro stories about the changing of worlds and countries and blah, blah. The Witcher is about three people living their life uh, and getting fucked over by the politics of the time and, uh, and how history repeats itself. There is macro elements to this micro story, but it is intently focused on these three people. I have no interest in reading a story about the most powerful sorceress in the land. I do, however, want to read about the sorceress who has been so jaded by her life experiences that she doesn't understand how to love and comes to understand that through the love of a man who also doesn't know how to love and a daughter who has lost everything. Um, that's the story I want to read. I don't want to read Powerful Sorceress Go Boom. Um, and I think that if they had done something with it, interesting thematic wise i wouldn't have a problem but now that season two has come out and they pretty much did nothing with it outside of a handful of lines to acknowledge yeah we fucked up on that because vilgefortz needs the political clout to get away with literally everything he does um they didn't do anything with it so i can't really be like oh we'll wait and see no i don't think it was a good idea it could have been but it wasn't her taking triss's role as the 14th one i also think was a dumb idea uh, because to me, I think they're lumping way too much on Yen. I understand from the viewpoint that she isn't in these books as much as Geralt of Ciri, but she is still a main character, so we need to beef up her time a little bit. Yeah, that's fine. I don't care, really. I, Yen's my favorite character. I'm not going to complain. But uh, there's only so much you need to add. I think it would have been a far more interesting story to see her deal with the fact that she was blinded rather than everybody thinks she's dead and everybody's going to mourn her 
uh, even though I have no feelings for anybody outside of Geralt mourning her. And uh, then all of a sudden she shows back up alive, and uh, Triss has a no... Uh, they have to, they, they kind of have to brush her PTSD under the rug because she's no longer the 14th one on the hill. And it's just a very bizarre choice. Hmm. What was your opinion on that? I'm kind of on the fence. I don't, I don't, I don't fully understand the change, but I'm not too against it personally. Because I guess uh, TV show wise, she is the, one of the main characters. So I guess from that perspective, it makes sense to to give her that kind of more mystic approach, you know, the everyone thinks she's dead and, and, uh, and all that, even though I, I guess the reserva- the revelation to have characters that she's alive didn't hit hard enough. Like mm-hmm. Geralt finds out from, um, you know, from the, I've got his name, but he's the guy I wanted to really it's punch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This guy. Um, and it was a nice reveal. You can see Henry Cavill was trying to act it out, but it just didn't hit hard enough, I feel, you know, especially when they reunited. It didn't Yeah. It was it was there but wasn't there enough. You know, it just lacks that proper impact, I feel. Yeah. The 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 best thing they did with it is in that first episode where um uh instead of having him uh come to Sodden Hill after the thing, he comes there just after the battle ended. Uh, and he walks up to Taseya, who he doesn't know, and who doesn't know him. And he's like, where's Yennefer? And she goes, who are you to, uh, who are you to her? And uh, he goes, just tell me where she is. And she's, she's like, I don't think she's alive. And you could tell he is, Geralt is trying to keep it together for Ciri's mm-hmm. sake. You could tell if Ciri wasn't there, he probably would have collapsed in tears. And he turns to say and goes, was it worth it? Uh, and then he walks away. And that was the most Geralt moment. That was the moment I went, ah, season two Geralt's book Geralt finally. Uh, and not a grunt machine like he was in season one. Because that was Geralt all of a sudden. I was like, oh my god, Henry Cavill's bringing it. Um, and uh, I think that's the best thing they did with it. And I think there could have been so much more they did with it. And I can understand from in a writer's room. She's a main character. Let's give her something special to do. But I think, like I said, the, the part of the fun with the series is that how minor and inconsequential the events are, because it's a micro story about three people um, and their, their family life. Um, and so, you know, big major events that happen in this book would be minor events in something like Game of Thrones. You know, it's not end of the world craziness. Um, And so to have her be the hero of this big major battle, it wasn't really up my alley, but I was willing back in season one to stick with it and see where they went with it. And then I realized they they had no plan for that and didn't really have any idea what they wanted to do with it. And the losing the powers thing, I realized I didn't answer that from your question. I know what that's supposed to be. That's supposed to foreshadow a thing that happens okay. later to Siri. Um, just spoilers for that. I won't tell you when or why, but sure, supposed to, that's supposed to foreshadow a thing that happens to Siri, and I don't think it works. Uh, mainly because it makes Yennefer come off as an idiot in the show. Her arc in season one was she's an abused woman who has no power, uh, no respect. 
and wants power to gain respect. And so the entire season, she's glomming on more and more and more power. She quite literally says, I want everything. And then when she gets all that power, she realizes power is meaningless next to love because you can have all the power in the world and you will still be hated. What really matters is to be loved by someone, to be significant to someone else. And she finds that in Geralt. Um, and uh, the, that, that entire, her entire season arc is about realizing her quest for power was meaningless and that it meant nothing and it didn't fulfill her the way she thought it would. Um, and so what is her season two arc? I want power. Sound a bit familiar? It's a tiny bit, yeah. Yeah, and guess what? The end of the season is realizing that power is meaningless next to the power of the of love of someone that you care about. In this case, Siri. Mm. Somebody press copy and paste. Yeah, it's her arc from season one all over again. And as I said in uh, in my retrospective, which by the way, uh, the uh, just in case I haven't said it in this podcast yet, but uh, the. Uh, uh, me and Claudia have done addendum an addendum podcast to cover some of the the additional stuff that we're not doing in written form, uh, and we did Netflix season two. And one of the big tirades we went on is that how show Yennefer is as dumb as a bag of bricks, uh, is because she's childish, she's immature, she's stupid, and she goes straight through the same arc twice and learns the same lesson and doesn't change. Um, this is my favorite character. I, I should point out my favorite character. I love Yen and show Yen is not Yennefer. Um, and I, I'm so baffled. Like, like I said, the heroes on Sondon Hill could have worked with it, could have done something. Losing the powers thing. You just repeated her same arc. There's nothing for her to learn there. Now, if they had done what the book did, but a little bit more, like the the blindness that we were told that uh, Yeno is blind, and that will get, that will come into more focus in uh, her big chapter at the end of the book with Siri, which I'm sure you're experiencing since you said you were on that chapter. Yeah, I I should I'll be getting to that point. Yeah, uh, that uh, she's already she's already had her eyesight repaired via magic at this point. In the show, they have decided not to do the time jumps the books do. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't it be interesting? To have a woman who wanted everything, got it, realized that it meant nothing, uh, and that love is the only thing that really mattered, and she lost it all in her own selfish quest. And then, in this big battle, she goes blind, and that gives her a renewed appreciation for what she had. That sounds brilliant. Yeah. That's like, it's... It's on paper. It is baffling that they didn't go with it. Because that's her arc in this. <laughs> I'm just using her book arc of the <laughs> entire point of the blindness is because Yin is this cold, sometimes callous person who's out for her own selfish whims. She does care. She cares about Geralt a great deal and she'll come to care about Siri a great deal. But still, there is that inherent selfishness within her. And part of that is turning that selfishness into a positive. That it's I want it. I want everything. I want to be powerful. I want, um, I want to have a child. I want to fix my infertility. I want someone who truly loves me. And then her blindness comes in, and we don't get to experience her having the blindness, but we get to experience her after effects, having to have her eyesight repaired, of her realizing she had everything she ever wanted. Um, it was Geralt. 
and and it will and even if she couldn't have a child with him that was the life she wanted and she was running away for it, from it because she was so she was so selfish and thought she could do better and um it gives her a renewed appreciation for what she had um and then she meets Siri and she grows to have a child and she realizes this is all she needed she didn't need anything else she needed Geralt and she needed Siri and the entire rest of the saga is about her basically breaking tooth and nail to ensure that her Siri and Geralt are left the fuck alone so they could live a life of peace uh, and just, you know, as Geralt says in Time of Contempt, have a little farm and, and, and sort of just hang out and be farmers. Uh, which they kind of do in the show where they have a, they have a dream sequence about that. Um, and so it's just like, that's, that's the, that, that's her arc is realizing she already had what she wanted and, uh, and not, and just not being able to see it. She was blind. The, the irony there. Um, and the show could have done that, but it didn't. And I, it was a bad choice. It was a really bad choice. Um, so I, I'm interested to see what you think of it as you go along in the saga, what your thoughts are, especially when you get to the big thing that happens to Siri. Um, how that's supposed to, how Yen's thing in the show is supposed to foreshadow that. Because I'm, I'm interested to see your reaction to that, because I'm not sure if it works or not, but we'll find out. Mm -hmm. So, real quick, what is your thoughts on uh the excerpts between the chapters like if i've in, in universe books this wasn't in the short stories so this is something mm. a bit new here of each chapter sort of has begins with an excerpt sometimes multiple excerpts from in universe books um and what's your take on that and how that plays into the themes of of uh, revisionist history, of misunderstandings, of apathy about and political neutrality. I really like them. I think it kind of echoes that first chapter. We've got those bunch of people, you know, around Yaskia or Dandelion, rather, and they're they're arguing back and forth about their views and all that. And I feel like the, these excerpts are a pretty clever way to go about that. Some of them are really they they are wax poetic storytelling about about history and then others are, are just blunt like the only good elf is a dead elf yeah uh and i like it it's a nice it's a clever bit of world building you know it's very similar to, to what watchmen did you know in some yes. levels, yeah. edits of that yeah yeah I, I definitely agree that watchman uh comparison is actually quite apt uh to people who don't know because there are potentially people who don't read comics in this mm -hmm. uh watchmen had uh b because they wanted to do the prestige format they didn't want to have ads in it uh, and so they needed to fill that space. Uh, and so they were trying to figure out what to do. And uh, I think it was Paul Levitz who suggested doing an in-universe sort of news clippings or in a book or something. And so uh, that we get, uh, so Alan Moore wrote that all out. And that's how we got um, uh, the first Night Owls uh, book that he wrote, Behind the Mask, I believe. Uh, it's been a while, so I can't remember the exact name. Um, and, uh, in, in stuff like that in sort of in universe stuff. And it actually, no, and you also get the, uh, the, the pirate story, which, uh, foreshadows a lot because it's Ozymandias' mm. story. That's just Ozymandias. Um, and, uh, you know, all of that is not only great world building, but it also 
foreshadowed, as I said, a lot of stuff that happens. But in here, not only does it foreshadow a lot of stuff, but also it gives you a nice world-building aspect, uh, but it also gives you sort of this different interpretation of stuff where, like, last chapter opened with Monstrum, a portrayal of witchers, which said, you know, there's nothing more dastardly evil than the witcher. They are the devil's work, blah, blah, blah. And then the excerpt right next to it was, stupidity and arrogance will always be with us. <laughs> uh, and that here, where oceans are right now, there will soon be mountains. But where stupidity is, there will always be stupidity. Um, and, uh... There's just stuff like that where it, it, it perfectly contrasts and uh, not to spoil anything, because I think I think this chapter or th this book has an excerpt from it, but we will get excerpts from Dandelion's book that he writes um, he, uh, in this. And so it's always fun to see how he in the future reflects upon these events and then read his reactions in, in, um, in actual real time. So it's actually quite fun. To see that, um, Dandelion Half a Century Poetry. That that that's the name of his book. Um, uh, you'll understand the meaning of that name, Baptism Fire, because that name has a very specific purpose, and it's it's a it's an interesting conversation. Uh, but we also get some stuff uh, in there, like uh, uh, there's there's uh, there's one in I think it's in Time of Contempt. I could be wrong. Where uh, they talk about uh, mage infertility, uh, and forced, uh, and basically forcing a uh, uh, forcing the procedure on the sorceresses rather than letting them choose, um, and the show went full hog on that, um, and um, and stuff like that. So you kind of get insights, but also there's sometimes excerpts from real world books. Um, and he uses it to contrast uh, the our real world and their world. Uh, for instance, there is a uh, this quote from Shakespeare at one point. There is a uh, quote from Frederick Nietzsche, uh, and it, it's a lot of fun to see him sort of play with that. And I think, and you'll notice this especially as we get into the later books. And I think uh, Lady of the Lake is where it becomes blatantly apparent what he's doing. It's all about. Uh, misunderstandings and uh, how everything we do and uh, is perceived by our own personal biases, and how one person can can look at a thing and and see, uh, you know, just just a piece of trash, and another person can look at it and see the key to the universe. You know how that uh, not a literal example, but you know, one person's trash is another one person's treasure. How everybody looks at things from their own perspective. And that colors the way we uh, talk about those things. And so if someone with that particular bias, say, wrote historical record, what would that historical record look like? <laughs> um, we have that in our own real world, you know, um, uh, of we never talk about Christopher Columbus's atrocities because he was the guy who found the, the new world. Didn't really. But, you know, that's the that's what we're taught, you know. Um, and so I just want to get your gist on that because it, it, it's a fun, uh, and as you said, great world building, but also is used to further thematic points. The only other question I have for you, um, is the, um, there's a large segment of this chapter focused on, uh, Triss entering a mindscape with Siri. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of foreshadowing, a hell of a lot of foreshadowing. 
Uh, but as someone, you know, I know what it was like reading it first through. Um, so I wanted to get your opinion of what what you think of that sort of sequence, and did it make any sense to you, uh, and stuff like that. Uh, and were you enjoying it, and uh, uh, just general feelings on that part of the chapter? I was expecting it to be pretty similar to what the show did, because I know something similar happened there with the mind meld. And you saw mm-hmm. visions of series parents, uh, but I think it wasn't a hundred percent same as what the book did. So I like that kind of difference. This felt mm-hmm. more vague, rather mystic talk about stairwells and doors. Uh, I don't a hundred percent get what it's going for. I'm guessing the door is like a metaphor for beyond it lies chaos, the source of magic, or something like that. Uh, it's a neat touch, and something I've noticed about the writing style is. There's no, like, kind of paragraph. In most books, there's a kind of, like, a paragraph gap to show when we're going from the real world into a, a dream or vision. Uh, with these books, it kind of just jumps right in, and I can imagine that throws a lot of people off. Like, if it threw me off the first time. I was like, oh, what, what are we doing here now? I thought we were <laughs> somewhere else. So it, it took some getting used to, but I, I kind of enjoy it. It does add to that, I feel, deliberate, disorientating feel of being suddenly somewhere else of this mindscape. Yeah. Um I, I do think that that was an intentional thing on his part. I, I could be mm. wrong. But uh if you look at like something more, when Geralt is having his uh flashbacks, um it it does a paragraph break uh to signify when he's flashing back and when he's in the cart. Um so my guess is that was intentional is to put us in Triss's headspace and be just as confused as she is. She thought she was talking to this young girl and all of a sudden she's talking to the embodiment of magic uh who's not at all subtly threatening her. Uh <laughs> oh, 14th one on the hill blah blah blah. Um so um I know where all this is heading. Obviously, and I know I, I appreciate some of the foreshadowing because a lot of it uh, means a lot to me. Uh, staircase, that's a big one. That's a scene that everyone comes away, no matter what you think of this series, they always come away and go, that staircase scene, man, that staircase scene. So <laughs> I will say, look forward to that. You got, <laughs> I certainly am. You got four books to go. <laughs> oh. So did he have like a massive... Um roadmap of what he was doing in the series for the most part yes so the in the short stories you know it was written at a whim for his son there was no real plan um and at a certain point he starts uh developing an idea and you could start seeing the seeds that he's planting in it if you go and actually look because the, the the short story collections put them in on an order that makes thematic sense or chronological sense those are not the order they were published in. So uh, if you go and look at the publishing dates, you'll notice that there's a very clear line where all of a sudden he's got a plan and he starts seeding it. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he gets the book deal, that becomes very apparent. I think there are bits that he certainly had planned, and I think there's bits he didn't. Um, and um, I think there is enough, you know, the the thing is is that there's a there there's a pro and con to various different kinds of writing. I'm a discovery writer. Um and uh just in case uh, I, I'm pretty sure you know what that means, but uh just in case the audience doesn't, that basically means I have no real plan. 
I have a general idea, maybe a character or two, and then I have an ending that I think would be kind of cool to get to. And then everything else is on the fly. I do what the characters tell me. Um, I, I take a very JMS approach to things. I'm just a cameraman. And the characters are going about their lives and doing their stuff, and I'm filming the characters. And whatever the characters do, it gets written down. So, uh, you know, th there, there was a time I had an ending in mind that my character told me, no, she wasn't going to go do that. So I had to rewrite everything. Um, uh, don't you hate it when your characters backtalk you? Um, and, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, and then people like JMS who are very hyper-planny, um, five-year arc, straight out the gate, know everything that's going to happen. Um, you know, there's some leeway here and there to zig when you need to, uh, or zag when you need to, but um, it's mostly very tightly plotted. I think there's a mix here. Um, he's never been forthgoing in interviews because Sapkowski, A, doesn't speak a whole lot of English, so I, there's very few, uh, like, full-length, uh, interviews in English, uh, and very few of the, his native language, Polish, that has been translated to English, but the sense you always get from him in interviews is he's a, he's a sarcastic son of a bitch, um, and he'll make jokes, uh, cause he, he, you get the kind of sense that he doesn't like the fame he likes the money, he doesn't like the fame. Uh, he's like, yeah, I made a major cultural touchstone that's like really popular, and I'll go away kind of person. <laughs> um, and I don't blame him. I'd be that way, too. Uh, so uh, uh, he hasn't really talked about how much exactly was planned. There's a lot of it that I can tell, like the staircase. Like, that, I know what that is, and I know what scene that is, and that's a very important scene to me and pretty much everyone who's ever read the books because it means a lot to us. And so you know he at least had that. Um, and there are certain things that definitely, like, because it's in the show, it's fair game. As I stated in my spoiler rule, Amir being series father is seeded throughout. Um, I'm sure you're picking up on stuff because now, because you know, because of the show, little itty-bitty inconsequential lines point straight to him. And if you had no idea, you wouldn't notice. Mm. Um, and uh, so uh, there, there are a lot of things I think was planned, but I'm, I'm sure there was some wiggle room there. He left himself. Uh, but as far as the, 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 the Siri Mindscape thing, I just wanted to make sure, because I know some people uh, either just didn't care about it or were confused. I remember my reactions when I first watched this, or not watched this, read it was like, this is different. This is interesting. I wonder where this is going. Uh, and on upon further rereads, I see everything that's going on there. And um, I was just uh, wondering, who is who do you think was talking to Triss through Siri? Based on what you've said, I'm guessing not Baba Yaga. Uh, so that's one thing I can do off the <laughs> list. No. But I don't have any solid theories at the moment. Uh, the one that may come to mind is... And this is just a spitball theory, like a future version of Siri talking back through her younger self. That's just a spitball theory I'm, I'm having because I've I've seen a lot of other series that do something kind of similar, kind of bootstrap paradox. No, so uh, kind of, uh, well, but kind of. Right, so uh, it's never fully revealed. Mm -hmm. it, it it's left up to interpretation to certain extents. There will be things revealed about what was going on that will sort of leave you going, oh, that's what that was. 
what I my firm theory um is that it's multiple people and it's uh Siri sort of connecting with magic in itself and there is a person who is in the magic that you'll get introduced to at some point. Um and um I think it is a combination of her some Siri, some Vilgefort, some Amir. It is basically her augury powers are able to see through time. And so she is saying things that all these lines will come back in different contexts, told by different people. Um, so not all of them are said by the same person. My thing is that it's sort of, my theory is sort of uh, that it is m the embodiment of the future, of magic itself. And one very particular person within that magic um, that uh, is talking through her. There, there's enough ambiguity there that can be read multiple ways. Some people say it's Vilgefortz. Some people say it's another character. Some people say it's uh, Mir. Um, some people uh, think it's just magic itself. I have sort of a mix in between. Uh, like I said, all this stuff gets answered, but it's left ambiguous enough where you're able to have some wiggle room there to decide for yourself what you think is the best answer. Um, I don't know if you like those kind of mysteries. I do. So really I'm open it. to it. Sounds intriguing. I like mm -hmm. uh, ambiguity. Yeah. Um, you've actually heard about the character that's in the magic in the, the show. So I'll tell you that much. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, but uh, no, I was, I was just interested because you know, I remember being really confused, but wanting to see where it goes. And then now I'm tainted by future rereads going, hey, I know that. Uh, and so it, it's just interesting to, to see through the eyes of someone who doesn't know what's coming down, uh, what that scene means. Um, so I think that was pretty much all my major questions. Do you have anything for me? Nope, I'm all good. Okay. Well, thank you for joining me. He'll, he'll be on in the future probably. Um, he is, uh, I don't know if you're going to continue past Blood of Elves. I think I will. At this point, I think, you know, I'm in for the roller coaster. You know, I've gone okay. this far, point of no return. I think let's, let's go all in. <laughs> okay. So yeah, you're free to come in on any of the other books. Um, Time of Contempt is my favorite. So I'm interested to see, uh, your thoughts on when that roller coaster hits. Uh, we're also working on a, uh, podcast for just us it's going mm -hmm. to be called elevator bullpen the general gist of it is um each of us uh comes up with a pitch for what if we had control of x franchise <laughs> so um you know uh what would we do if we were in control of batman or whatever and we can pitch uh, uh a idea in any medium video game tv movie comics etc um and sort of we we talk through what we would do with the characters how we do it um and uh just the general gist of it all um and uh the first one we're doing is star trek and that will be out in some interminable time in the future within the next month or so but uh anyway thank you for joining me thank you and bye bye